So, Kerstin. Yes. Something that I have learned from the previous week, it is that you can get 10,000 followers <laughs> rolling down in the ground. Yep, rolling on the floor. That's the secret to social media success. Okay, <laughs> I will take that into consideration for the future. So it was amazing how just 1,000 followers in a day? Almost. About 500 followers in one day. It was crazy. Like, just, just to what I've been doing over the past six months is monitoring how many followers I've been getting, trying to see, you know, what people enjoy, what people aren't enjoying with my Twitter page. And it turns out rolling on the floor pretending to be the planet Uranus is a, a, a slam dunk. <laughs> okay, I have to say two things here. First, that it seems it is coming as a consequence of what we are discussing in our previous episode. A little bit, a yes. Little bit. <laughs> The second one, it is I'm very jealous. Not only because you overpassed me. <laughs> yep, I did. I did see that. <laughs> but also because you are doing a great work there. And not only with the quality of the content you are doing almost every day in social media, mm -hmm. but also something that I have missed doing it during all my career, which is getting the, not the feedback, but monitoring what you are doing for getting better results. It's literally doing science, but the science of social media. Okay. It's really cool. I know that you are in a rush today, so we are going to start recording this episode right now, but you have to tell me your secret the next time. Definitely. Okay. I will share my, all my secrets. Great. I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the Scientists. scientists. <laughs> episode 38 where you are with a social media dynasty right now <laughs> should i put here the music of the dynasty tv show uh maybe <laughs> if there are no copyright issues um, but yes welcome to episode 38 where today we are going to do something that's really close to my heart and i'm really excited to do this and i want to thank Anhel for suggesting this topic for today's episode but we'll hold on to that for a moment I'm going to say that we were thinking about including something like this in our previous episode. It was in my notes, at least doing a little mention, but we will go there. Yes, please. Yes, well, we'll get there in due time. But first things first, I have some exciting news. This is not space news. Well, it's related to space, but I have something else that's like actually space, space news. Um, so I submitted a proposal. Mm -hmm. For telescope time. Yes. On the AAT. Yes. And I got all the nights that I wanted. Wow. I'm very happy. My God. first ever proposal for my PhD. And I got asked for 15 nights and we got 15 nights. 15 nights? 15. 15. 1 5. Which one five. instrument? On, with Veloce. With Veloce. Yes. Which is okay. a, a very, very high precision spectrograph for those who don't know. Mm, so, in all the instruments that. You can use at the AAT. That is the only one I have never used. Ooh, it's really, it's really easy to use. It's I know, quite I intuitive. Know, I know, but it doesn't matter if it is easy. If you have never used it, you have to do know. You have to be taught how to do it. Yes, indeed. But uh, but here's the kicker. So while this is all very exiting, our um, <laughs> our schedule's a bit interesting 
So we have a bunch of second half nights mm-hmm. in October and November. But then his and which is fine. Like we'll 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 deal with that. We have a couple of first half nights as well, which is great. It's a lot easier to stay up for just a bit later than I guess would you go to sleep for a little bit in mm-hmm. the afternoon and then wake up and, and then go? Let me just explain to our listeners. When Kirsten is talking about half of the night, it is sometimes we divide a full night into halves. Mm. So the first half, you can observe something that it is at the beginning of the night. And the second half, you usually observe something that is up in the second part of the night. And yes. that is the case for Kirsten. Yes. So that's going to be interesting to uh, try and deal with. Mm-hmm. Especially with the sleep pattern that will arise from it. Because I have, I think, three second half nights in a row. And then two full full nights. And then another couple of second half nights. And then a day off. And then a first half night. And it's like... <laughs> but that's not even the best part. I have a whole seven or eight, maybe nine days right over Christmas. Ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Merry Christmas in advance. Merry Christmas to okay. me. <laughs> now you are going to experience what that happened to many of us during a lot of time. If our listeners go back to our first episodes in our first season, I was doing plenty of support of the AAT in those times. And there is even one that we started with me sleeping. The uh, recording, do you remember that yes, one? Yes, I do. I'm very tired. So you will... It'll be my turn it now. Will, it will be your turn. <laughs> and regarding Christmas, I have spent how many? Three or four Christmases mm-hmm. at the Canary Islands observing in the telescopes. Not only Christmas, but also New Year's Eve. Oh, wow. And my family was not happy. I can imagine. <laughs> well, I was planning to go to and spend fam- to spend Christmas with my family up where they live on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And I got I got the email when I was visiting them on the long weekend. And I'm like, hey, so good news. Got telescope time. Bad news. It's over Christmas. So I can't come up for Christmas. But I've been told that it's a rite of passage observing over the Christmas period. Yes, it so is. It is. I'm very, I'm very blessed in a way to say that I have my first ever observing experience will be over Christmas. Yes. And also the sky cannot wait. Not only that, it is just uh, the sky doesn't care about our festivities. No, it doesn't. That is, um, they just happen to be that right over Christmas are the bright nights because mm. we we just we don't need any dark nights. So we, let me explain what we have: dark nights, we have grey nights, gray nights, and then bright nights. Mm-hmm. So a bright night is when the moon is pretty close to full and it's up and will not be ideal for. Observing, say, galaxies that are really, really far away. I would assume that your observations would need dark nights. Never using bright nights. Yes. Because we want to observe very faint objects. Mm. Not only the objects. It is the the features that we want to observe, particularly the absorption features in the spectra. They are completely eliminated if we are using bright nights. That's right, because the, the sky... moon is just really bright. Yeah, you know, the sky is very much illuminated and you are missing plenty of details. Mm. Whereas for my observations, we're observing stars. For the stars, or for, for planets. That we, is... Yeah, we're, we're good. We, we don't need dark or grey nights. So grey nights is kind of like dark, you can suggest there's no moon up, so it's dark. And grey nights, I assume, is just somewhere in between? Yeah, something in between. It is when the moon is up only around half of the night. Mm. So you have um, half of the night that is particularly dark and the other half that is not as bright as the full moon, but still is considerably bright, yes. 
So, well, congratulations. That is excellent news, Thank I'm going you. to say. So that you, will, you will tell us here. I will tell you all about my experience, <laughs> yes. <laughs> How that was, yes. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully we don't have a Tuesday when we record that is precisely after a second half night. <laughs> We will manage about that. We'll, we'll work we'll it manage. out. <laughs> Perhaps I can go uh, if you... I know, because you will probably do them from here. At UNSW. Yes. yes. Okay. So you have a remote observing room, which is... It's very funny. This remote observing room, it's in... If you look at the map of the physics building at UNSW, there's just this floating room, <laughs> which is the remote observing room, because you have to go down a corridor, up some weird stairs, and down like half stairs, and it says astrophysics is where the old astrophysics department used to be, and it's just... A corridor of like three rooms and one of those rooms is the remote observing room mm -hmm. because of the consequence of the COVID-19 global pandemic now they are even allowing people if they can to observe remotely from their very own house yes if you have and I loved the the expression that they used for this in the email if you have good enough bandwidth for you know internet connections and screen real estate <laughs> so if, because if you've ever seen photos of Angel or myself inside one of these remote observing rooms or even just the observing room at the AAT there's like at least six screens at least six monitors yeah I will say that you need at least at least at least four of them four of them usually to, six to more or less manage but uh, it will be a bit crazy because you have to be putting windows over windows and mm. you cannot be monitoring everything at the same time. That's right. Yeah. It's very fun. Um, we'll fill you in as, it, as we get more observant. It will also depend on the instrument. But anyway, let's go to move away from this. Um, yes, and on to your real space news. Real space news. Last week we were talking about this citizen science project that is trying to measure light pollution. And that is going to happen this Sunday, the 21st of June, on the Excellent. June 30s. And I want to invite everybody to try to have a look to the web page because we are going to try to beat a world record. Yes. The world record is most users to take an online environmental sustainability lesson in 24 hours. And it is actually very fun because the only thing you have to do is just go outside after sunset, I mean at night, look at the stars and just using an app, that you can use an app in the phone or you can go directly to the Globe at Night web app. It is very easy to do and you get a map of a particular area of the sky, let's say the Southern Cross, oh. and, and you choose one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, there are seven maps. These numbers have the limit magnitude, mm -hmm. of course, and you see how many stars have you observing from the place you are. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter if you are in a city, and actually we want to measure that. Yes. If we are in cities, if we are in towns, if we are in suburbs. Not yeah, that... doesn't, doesn't matter where you are, we want this information. We want that information. And you register that, and you can do it in several regions in the sky. It's That's very really easy. cool. Yeah, and particularly for kids. I'm going to involve all the neighbors here in the street. My son and, and myself are already involved in that. And we have been practicing at night too. Excellent. <laughs> I insist that that is very easy. There are two options here. You can just go and do it for free in the sense of you just provide your data. Mm -hmm. But if you want to pay $3 for participating on this, you will enter in a contest mm -hmm. to try to get some of the awards that they are giving. Ooh. And the first prize, it is a 
Pintel telescope valued in $800. That's pretty decent. That is the Stansense Explorer DX13. Perfect for any backyard. For any backyard, for any kid, because mm -hmm. I like this telescope. It is a Newtonian, 130 millimeters, and it has um, a holder for your phone, and Excellent. it is using your phone for guiding you. Oh! So it knows where you are pointing using the GPS in building in on their phone. That's really cool. So it's very easy for beginners mm -hmm. to try to to start using it. If you want to do astrophotography with this, it will not be ideal, although you will, of course, will be able to get very beautiful images of the moons and mm. planets, but not auto-guiding. There are two more prizes, the Sun binoculars given by Astron NC, and also four quite quality meters that are these little devices that are able to measure exactly the limit magnitude of the sky. I mean, the Surface magnitude of the sky. Awesome. So that's so you can keep if you win those, you can keep doing and collecting data for us. Mm -hmm. That yes. is awesome. So I encourage everyone to participate to be aware of the problem of the light pollution. That's right. I don't want to forget mentioning that this initiative is organized by the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance. And it is not only going to help us to understand the problem of the light pollution and the effect on people, animals and astronomy, but also try to create a map of Australia's darkest skies. The project is supported by the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, with some few other supporters like Astro 3D, Astro NZ, Bintel, ICRA, Globe of Night, ANU, International Dark Sky Alliance. So I really want to thank Marnie Ogg, who is the CEO and founder of the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance, for organizing this event. Exactly. And usually when we are talking about light pollution, we, of course, we are astronomers, we emphasize, ah, oh, we cannot see the stars. Mm. And we have talked about light pollution in the past, in particular in our episode 12, Light is Saturn in Autumn, that was the last episode of season one. Mm -hmm. We were discussing a bit more about the problems of the light pollution. But I want to emphasize that it is not only that. It is much more than the problems that astronomers or people can have not enjoying a dark sky. Yes. It's also a huge bad impact in the environment. Mm. And for that, I would like to play here just a couple of minutes of a video that Dr. Karen Arthur from the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment prepared for this initiative for realizing how light pollution is impacting the environment, the flora and the fauna. All life on Earth has evolved over millions of years to adapt to daily cycles of light and darkness. Many nocturnal species have adapted to use the cover of natural darkness to carry out important activities like feeding and migrating. When we introduce artificial light, it can impact on these species. Light pollution can disorient organisms or even affect ecological processes like the availability of food. It can stop turtle hatchlings finding the ocean and stop fledgling seabirds learning to fly if their nests never get dark. Light pollution affects a wide range of organisms in many different ways, but its impacts can be mitigated. For this reason, the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment developed National Light Pollution Guidelines for Wildlife. 
They provide a framework for assessing and managing the impacts of light pollution on wildlife and are built around best practice lighting design principles and a risk assessed and adaptive management approach. To reduce light pollution, we need to ask, what is the purpose of the light? In many cases, it's to provide for human safety. Nothing in the light pollution guidelines for wildlife removes the obligations for human safety, but where there are competing requirements for lighting, creative solutions may need to be found. The light pollution guidelines promote six best practice light design principles. Start with natural darkness. Use adaptive smart controls for lighting. Only light the intended area or objects. Use the lowest intensity lighting appropriate for the task. Use non-reflective surfaces and use lights with little or no blue wavelengths. When artificial light is likely to affect a protected species, the light pollution guidelines recommend a risk assessed and adaptive management approach to light management. The guidelines can be found on the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment's website. Talk to your community, share this information and consider what you can do to minimise light pollution for our natural environment. How impactful was that? It's, 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 because like, as astronomers, sure, yeah, we are very passionate about the night sky, but we're also inherently environmentalists as well, because we care about where we come from and, you know, caring about our environment. So that was beautiful. Thank yes. you, Angel, for sharing that with us. No, no, not a problem. Um, I have emphasized some few times that, that uh, we have to take care of our planet and that is an extra little step that we can use for protecting our environment. That's right. And, and also for saving money mm. and resources. Exactly. And also it's better for humans too because we run on that natural cycle based on the, the blue light that we receive from our sky. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is mm. very important, which is mm. why you should limit your screen time before you go to bed. Yes, the blue light. that for sure. <clears throat> and I should learn about that. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, moving on to MySpace news that I'd like to share today. And I'm really not so much, I want to say baffled, but not quite. Like, it, it, it makes sense, but it just sounds really cool. So, you may have heard in the news recently that Saturn's moon Titan is zooming away from its ringed planet 100 times faster than previously expected. Okay, I didn't hear about that. So, it's... so. Basically, according to a, a study about Saturn's rings and its moons, uh, it believed that Titan was actually born relatively close or formed relatively close to Saturn, relatively close to the planet. But over the four and a half billion years of the solar system existing and the planet existing, it has migrated out to where it is now, which great segue from last episode that we had yeah because then we are seeing that that it it's is quite common it is not happening only in the solar system and we are observing that that is happening usually in other solar systems mm. and other stellar systems but also with moons but also with moons that's right also with satellites around planets mm. so currently titan is 1.2 million kilometers away from saturn very far compared to how far away our moon is from the earth but still, Saturn is much bigger than the Earth. Yes, so relatively probably is quite close, actually. So moons exert these tidal forces on their planets. We experience this every single day in the form of tides. And Saturn also experiences a tidal force due to Titan. But it was previously thought that it wasn't quite as uh, pronounced because essentially it's causing friction within the core of the planet. And this friction changes the gravitational pull of the planet and then hence the gravitational force between the moon 
and Saturn planet. Mm -hmm. So for our moon orbiting around the Earth, our moon moves farther away from the Earth about 3.8 centimeters every year. Yes. Just, uh, I've heard it's equivalent to the speed that your nail, nails grow. Mm -hmm. I think we have also discussed that in another episode. Probably, yes. I, I don't, I don't yeah, doubt that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a friction and as a consequence, that is also making that the rotation of the Earth, it is slowing down. Mm. Conservation of the angular momentum. That's right. We love saying that in astronomy. <laughs> it's the answer to almost everything, every question in astronomy. A lot. A lot indeed. So Saturn is tugged on by Titan very similarly, but it was believed or thought that the friction that Titan causes on Saturn would be significantly less on Saturn than, say, it is for the Moon on the Earth, because the Earth is solid and Saturn is quite gaseous. It is a gas giant. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. It's not quite. It is just made of gas. It's just made of <laughs> gas, yes. Um, so, based on this previous research, it suggests that the moon, Titan, should be moving away from Saturn at just 0.1 centimeters per year. Okay, that so is... very slow. Quite slow. Very yeah. slow. But this new work, and it's been confirmed by two different teams doing it in two different ways... Mm -hmm. We're using two different methods. That is the way we should be doing always in Indeed. science. Indeed. In science. Indeed. Uh, this suggests that Titan is actually moving away from Saturn 11 centimeters per year. Okay, that is three times, four times. Try 10 so, times faster, 100 times faster. No, I was talking about the speed that the moon is moving away from the Earth, four times. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's moving away at 11 centimeters per year, which is a lot faster than... 0.1 centimeters per year. Yeah, we are here changing orders of magnitude. Indeed. Actually two, two of them. Two orders of magnitude. So the two different ways that these two teams did it, one team used a technique of astrometry. Okay. Mm -hmm. as Which we like very well. So we measure precise positions and movements of stars and other objects around Saturn to determine Titan's position so in they relation did it, to those nearby objects. Did they did it from Earth. So all these from observations Earth. have been done from Earth. These the astrometry was done from Earth, mm -hmm. but they also used radiometry uh -huh. using Cassini. Ah, that yes. is what I was expecting. I was expecting that this would have been a result from Cassini data. That's right. So they measured the electromagnetic radiation including visible light, from Cassini to calculate Cassini's velocity around Saturn and when it's going nearby Titan, which then, uh, knowing the velocity of Cassini, especially when it's moving by Titan, will allow researchers to measure the gravitational force exerted by the Moon, hmm. which then can help them understand the yeah. forces between Saturn and Titan. Yes. And both, both obtained results in full agreement. So that it's pretty definitive. Yes, yes, that seems that seems so. Which is mm. just incredible. We also have to emphasize that Titan it is a very remarkable object. It is. It is larger than Mercury. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the second largest. Yes, second largest moon in, in the, the solar, solar system. system after Ganymedes. Mm -hmm. And it has a very interesting atmosphere. Yes, and thicker it, than the Earth's atmosphere. Yes, and it rains methane. Yes, so if you if you uh, end up Traveling to Titan in the future, make sure you take a peg for your nose. <laughs> <laughs> but it will be very cold. Very cold too. Yeah, a jumper and, and a peg. So yes, how mm, cool is that? Very, very it's, nice. It's so great to see just science done really well. And it makes me feel proud of the scientific community. Yes, and in the very intense and crazy times that we are living at the moment, perhaps 
having this view of how science is able to provide answers and not based of our personal thoughts, mm. but in the facts that we are measuring and providing some few models. And we are able to say that is the model that is working best for explaining this. And mm. that is what we should try to, even though perhaps in 10, 20, 30 years of a century, we have to change the model because we have new data, mm -hmm. better data that is able to show us some little things that are not able to be explained. That's right. And that is why we are continually learning in science. That's it. It's ex it's science is expanding the knowledge of humans. And sometimes that knowledge can change. And, and it I, does. And I hope, it's, I hope it's things like, in stories like this, that restore the public's faith in scientists. Because I feel like with, I don't know, with a couple, there's a couple of people who are like, oh, nah, that can't be right. I actually had quite a... Uh, Quite a conversation on TikTok with a commenter who was trying to convince me that the expansion of the universe is fake. Okay. Yes. Because it doesn't have walls. So it can't expand because it doesn't have walls. Uh, that doesn't have too much sense. But anyway. Exactly. So it's. I just feel like the things like this, I hope it does restore the, our, the faith hmm. of the public in the scientists. Because, you know, we work hard to, to do this. But for that... There's a, there's a, we, we could have a very long conversation here, and that is not the point of this episode. No. But anyway, let me, let me just at least say that for that, it is we scientists that we have to be talking to people, and particularly to young people. Yes. Because young generations have to learn how to we are using science for getting the amazing things that we are having today. TikTok is an example. I mean, mm. Social media and and internet, yes. Wi-Fi, and all 3D games. Not only that, all the huge medical advances that we have had in the last few decades. Mm. And I can connect that with the current situation at the moment, that is yes. what is happening. And if it wasn't because during many years, scientists have been trying to understand much better how viruses work, mm. Right now, we, in the world, we will have had a devastating effect. And we know that we are going to overpass this eventually. Yes. Eventually. The problem that we have with the actual society, it is that we are starting to be used that everything is happening from one day to the other. Yes. And then we have not been able to learn how we have to be going, following some steps, and that some few things, they need time. Yes. There are plenty of people working, trying to get a vaccine, let's mm. say that. And we will get there eventually. It might happen, I don't think this year, but even perhaps next year. Mm. But it will happen. And because it has happened in the past, and now we have a better knowledge. That's right. And that's the thing right now, because especially with the with COVID and, and what's happening in the world, the global, global pandemic, is... The general public are now seeing the behind-the-scenes version of science. Because most of what science in the public eye is, is, oh, we've published this paper. Hmm. This is the new science. But what some people don't realise is that that paper has taken months, sometimes years, of previous work, of tinkering, fixing, understanding, to produce this six-page paper about some sort of topic. And even published... It might be not final. 
Exactly. It might be some few things that they need to be taken into consideration. Mm. And that is what we are continually doing, trying exactly, to, to like refine, continuously refining, refining, building, refining and... that. And that is why it is important that uh, society understands how this game works. Mm. And also that society is supporting the huge effort that scientists are doing. I'm not talking only about COVID-19, but mm. there might be there, there are many, many other challenges that we are facing now. Global warming, mm. if we are hit by an asteroid, if the sun is having one of these very intense coral mass ejections. Mm. There are many things that we should try to be ready for. Exactly. But not to scare not you, to, not, but there are the science is ongoing. And that is why we need society to support us yes. in that way. Because they have to understand that to support us. And we want to thank you, listening right now, for supporting us by listening to us. Oh, that for sure. <laughs> 100%. And it is not only that. It is that everyone can play a very important role here. We are all humankind ready to try to get the best of science and to advance in scientific knowledge and in human culture. And it doesn't matter your sex, mm. your sexuality, your background, and so on. So what I want to make the point here, it is precisely what we are seeing. It is just that we need to get a better society where everyone is equal. That's right. Exactly right. But speaking of you listening right now, we have a question from our viewer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Person that's good. who he listens to scientists. So I got an email as a as a note from through my Facebook page, hmm. which was fantastic. Is another another way you can reach us. Uh, from Zane in the UK. So in Zane, the UK. In the UK. Hello. Hello Zane. So Zane has uh, recently joined us on the scientists. Uh, and he's thank been, you. Thank you for joining us. We love having you here. And he's been binge listening while driving his bus to catch up. Mm -hmm. So this is fantastic. And he sent through a question for us. And it's a great question. So Zane from the UK has asked, if until the New Horizon mission, we only had very poor images of Pluto because it's too far away, how can we see things even further away and get clear pictures of them, even with Hubble? So I say, for example, why do galaxies look fantastic? with Hubble, and they're millions, sometimes billions of light years away, yet the Hubble image of Pluto is quite flat. <laughs> <laughs> it falls quite flat, like, oh, that's it. So, an answer to you, Zane. It is all about angular size. So, this is essentially how wide does this object look on the sky? So. For the moon, the moon's angular size is half a degree. Keeping in mind that Pluto is 30% smaller than the moon. The moon. Mm -hmm. So it's if, if Pluto was as close as the moon is, it would still look smaller than the moon. But keep in mind that Pluto is billions of kilometers away. So its angular diameter is 0 0.06 arc seconds, where yeah. an arc second is... What, one sixtieth? One thirty-six hundredth of a degree. That's one arc second. That is one, one arc second. And Pluto is 0 0.06 yes. arc second. Mm -hmm. So it is very, very small in the sky. Most telescopes, uh, if you have a backyard telescope, you're going to struggle 
what what you'll need for a backyard telescope is a camera to take a long exposure and then you'll just see a dot. Yeah, it, would, <laughs> it will it. be just a dot because, for example, for my telescope, the standard size of a star, that is what we call the scene, it is at least five, six arc seconds. Mm. It depends on the camera, it depends on the resolution. Yes, but, and it depends on the day. But even, for example, using the Anglo-Australian telescope, let's say, the largest optical telescope here in Australia, mm. we cannot very easily get resolutions below one arc seconds. Just in the infrared, a bit, but not that much, just, let's say, 0. 0.7 with the largest optical telescopes on earth we can still get a bit larger resolution but not that much because we have the atmosphere <laughs> yes which is difficult and still with Hubble the resolution with one of the cameras it is around that 0 0.1 0 0.01 no 0.01 I don't see 0.01 so it, the, the size of Pluto in the Hubble Space Telescope camera, it is only few pixels. Mm. And just a few pixels, three, four pixels perhaps. That's right. And from there, you can try to extrapolate a map. And that is what they did. Exactly. For the Pluto image that they got with Hubble. Mm. However, for galaxies, for example, I mean, this one's quite an extreme example, but the Andromeda Galaxy, mm -hmm. it's quite close, so it's quite large. And in fact, Hubble needs to take multiple pictures just to get a mosaic. Multiple Andromeda. pictures mean 200 to cover only around 20% of it. Wow, <laughs> I didn't think it was that much. Yes. That's incredible. But for example, so the Andromeda Galaxy has an angular diameter of 3 degrees 10 minutes by 1 degree. So yes. that's, that's, it's, it's quite large. Hmm. It and is, it is so large that the best way of observing the Andromeda Galaxy sometimes is using binoculars. Yes. Because it's just if, so big. if you're using a telescope and you have a small field of view, then you only see the center of the galaxy, not, mm. not that much. That's right. So with other galaxies even further away, they're quite large compared to Pluto. And they're quite diffuse, so they're not yes. just a dot. They're not. They dot. have, they have structure. An, an structure. Mm. Or morphology, if mm -hmm. you want to be fancy so, in astronomy. So there are many galaxies in our neighborhood, galactic neighborhood, or extragalactic neighborhood, better mm -hmm. said, that um, have sizes of some few arc minutes. For example, M83, or yes. the Sombrero Galaxy, I'm thinking, or oh, Centaurus A. So they're quite significantly so larger the, than Pluto. They are hundreds, if not thousands of times larger, or perhaps 10,000 of times larger than the angular side that we see Pluto. And even though we astronomers that observe galaxies complain that we are not achieving enough angular resolution, <laughs> because we can see the galaxy, we can see different structures in galaxies, but we cannot easily identify individual stars. When we, when we get to do that one day, I'm, it's going to be a very exciting day. Yes, perhaps I will, will keep that for another day. <laughs> I have a couple of extra things for feedback. First, I want to thank our friend uh, Tomas Ruiz Lara. We briefly talked about him in our previous episode. And he's the PI of this nature paper, trying to understand the structure of the Milky Way with and the formation of the solar system connecting with the interaction with the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy. Mm -hmm. He said to us, it is an awesome podcast. Oh, thank and you. I don't know how you find the time for everything. <laughs> Neither do we. <coughs> Let's be honest. 
Then our friend Cafuego shared a, a picture of Mercury. It was beautiful. That uh, he took in October 2019 in our, the previous elongation. Mm. Um, it was not only Mercury, it was also the Moon and Venus in this image beautiful. with sun clouds. Very, very nice image. Thank and you. I, and I'd like to say, and we did tweet this when we saw it, but um, it's okay to use archive data. If Hubble can do it, <laughs> we can do it too. It, it, if Hubble and everyone is doing that, perhaps we should talk about the virtual observatory sometime. Ooh. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, another idea. So let's go to another. <laughs> Put that on the list. <laughs> also, many people were also very shocked knowing about the migrating planets. Yes. For example, our friend Caroline Fan, she said, literally, unbelievable and yet wonder, wonder. Apparently, it happened. Yes. It is completely unbelievable. I'm mm. still shocked to this day. <laughs> Yeah, um, regarding that, there are two little things that I wanted to include here for auto-feedback from the previous episode, and I'm going to be very brief. One, it is, uh, I have here a note. Don't forget to mention that using near-infrared and adapted optics, we can actually see changes in the clouds of Uranus and Neptune from Earth. Because I only said, talking about Neptune, that we have seen this kind of clouds with the Voyager 2, mm-hmm. and and I was going to say this, but then later we moved to a different topic or different line of thought, and mm-hmm. I didn't, and I forgot. I'm sorry for that. I wanted to make that clear. Um, if, using Keck in particular, mm-hmm. they have been following these storms in Uranus and Neptune in the near infrared. They are changing continuously. So the atmosphere of Uranus and Neptune are much more dynamically active than we might have thought. Mm-hmm. And the other thing it is that we talked about the nice, sorry, nice. <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. And I did it on purpose. The nice <laughs> um, models of the solar system, mm-hmm. um, that is also englobed in what is called the Grand Tag Hypothesis, mm-hmm. that some people actually mention that in, in, in some comments. That in planetary astronomy, it is the hypothesis that uh, is suggesting that Jupiter created at around 3.5 astronomical units, then migrated inward to one and a half. Oh, that's close. Very close astronomical units. And then reversed the course to capturing Saturn in orbital resonance, eventually halting near its current orbit at 5.2 astronomical units. Very cool. So as you can see with this, there is still plenty of research and ideas that we can try to put together. Definitely. Let me just my last thing of feedback. I should have tried to start with this one because it is a sad note. The sad note it is that in the previous episode, we were talking about how using the first radioverse to try to uncover the missing baryonic matter of the universe. And in that episode, and that was my fault, I didn't mention that the PI of this project was uh, Professor Jean-Pierre Macquart. And it is extraordinarily sad that he died last week. Yes, very suddenly, very unfortunate. He unfortunately had a heart attack. And everyone is completely wow, because he was doing it very, very, very well. Yeah. Just take a minute for <sighs> um, one of our... I knew him, although not personally, 
I have to confess that he has been always, I have seen him a bit peculiar because... Aren't we all a bit peculiar? <laughs> yeah, yeah but, 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 well, um, everybody that knows him well, of course, says that he was a fantastic person. And definitely uh, the research that he was leading was absolutely on the top. So um, it was very shocking and very sad news. Exactly the week after he got all this amazing news of the publishing a nature paper mm. that is very difficult and being on the news even here in Australia yes. and, and overseas. And then the following week, you are no more. Very unfortunate, and, very sad. And that also makes me think about how we should be taking care of ourselves and the people who we love. Yes. Okay. <laughs> on that note. <laughs> on that note. Let's on to the main topic for today. Mm-hmm. Um, which I am going to continue on to this uh, solemn sort of vibe we've got here. But in, in a bit of a different way. So I'm sure many people are aware that there have been conversations and protests going on around the world. Mostly in America. Also in Australia too. About Black Lives Matter. And I really want to say that I'm very happy that we are going to amplify Indigenous voices today uh, and Indigenous language that we're going to amplify in this episode, because this episode's all about Aboriginal astronomy. So I want to share with you guys a little bit about uh, my culture and my background. So Wiradjuri is where I come from. For those who don't know, that's central New South Wales area. It's the largest Indigenous group from New South Wales. There are over 250 different Indigenous groups in Australia. So it's, it's going to be difficult to cover all of it, and I do not know all of it because unfortunately from Australia's tough history, we have lost a lot of that information, a lot of that knowledge. Which is very, very sad. Very, very sad. Very, very sad. Um, I will say that it is common in other cultures, I mean in other civilizations yes. that have conquered and can start thinking about being from Spain, of course, and all the of South American cultures and American general cultures. That's right. But not only that, not not only South or Central America, also the indigenous population in Northern America. Exactly. Yeah. So in light of of what's happening in the world now, and also just because we should be talking about this anyway, because Australia, we should be proud. We should be proud of our rich astronomical history of this country and that's what we're going to do today we're going to share a little bit about that with you today we we should be proud because australian aboriginal culture it is the longest lived culture in the world exactly and we're still around case in point me (laughs) it is still around there are still many traditions and many other cultural things that the aboriginal australians have um every time that we are losing one of these cultures, it is something that we all humans, humanity, humankind, is losing mm. as a global culture. Indeed. And it is sad. It is very sad. And we can, now we are going to be talking about Aboriginal astronomy in particular, but it's also talking about Africa, about South America, mm. about all the islands and many different cultures in that have risen in the world during many, many, many millennia. Yes. And it is really sad that 
as a consequence of the globalization, we are losing all of that. The culture, the languages, mm. the traditions that you might support them or might not, but it is an expression of their feelings, their thoughts, their ideas, their dreams, mm. their fears. And that is all what makes us humans. Exactly. Exactly right. And funny little side note, the scientists popped up on Spotify under Indigenous Voices. That's good. Well, because, because, you, of, because you, of me. Because of you, of course. Yes. So it's really cool. So if you, if you want to find us on Spotify, just search under Indigenous Voices and you'll find us. Well, you will find us in Spotify, in TuneIn, Apple Podcast, in SoundCloud, of course. That is where we actually upload the episode. Mm -hmm. In Evox, and it says Evox because it is Spanish. So it is Evox, not iVox. And some few other channels. Exactly. Anyway. So... Indigenous voices, let's go. So today we're going to talk about Aboriginal astronomy and I want to start off by considering how we're all very much used to looking at the sky by looking for patterns and looking for constellations. So there are quite a few different kinds of constellations in Aboriginal astronomical traditions. We actually have constellations very similar to those of Western astronomy. So let's take Orion for example. You have a collection of stars that together create and manifest an image of a great hunter. Mm -hmm. You have the three stars as his belt, two stars as his shoulders, two stars as his feet, and his arm up in a club, and whatnot. Another one holding like the, a, the, a spear the shield, or shield. The shield. Sometimes they see it as like a the the hide of one of the animals that he's recently mm -hmm. conquered. But anyway, so stars, a collection of stars are collected together to manifest some sort of pattern or image. We have the same almost exactly the same constellation in Wiradjuri astronomy. So the same stars in the constellation of Orion in Wiradjuri astronomy make up the constellation of Bayami, which is the great creator spirit. Okay. And what's really interesting, because on the Northern Hemisphere, or from the Northern Hemisphere, when you look at Orion, he's standing up tall, mm -hmm. the right way up, standing. But from the Southern Hemisphere, due to being on a round Earth, our perspective changes and we see Orion as upside down. Bayami is also depicted the same way, as upside down. Hmm. So Betelgeuse, the star, is one of the shoulder stars of Bayami. Um, what's the other one? Rigel is a feet. Rigel, yeah, Rigel is one of the feet. And, and you have the belt, um, which is really interesting that it is depicted as upside down. And there's a really cool Wiradjuri astronomy story, or star story, where Bayami is chasing the emu, which I'll get to very shortly. We know we've mentioned the emu on The Scientist before, but we'll get there. So Bayami is chasing the emu, and in the story, Bayami trips on a log uh. and falls flat on his face. <laughs> and that's depicted in how the sky and how the stars move in the sky. So when Orion is setting in the western horizon, he goes down head first because of our perspective from the southern hemisphere. Which I think is really cool. Yeah, It's the same orientation, and that... that the story reflects what we observe intimately with the stars. Hmm. So yeah, so we can have constellations that are just like the ones we have in Western astronomy, a collection of stars to create and manifest an image. But this is where it starts to get a little bit different and the perspective starts to change because also individual stars can be a whole constellation by itself. So from the Burong people of the Wagaya language group in northwestern Victoria, 
The star Arcturus mm-hmm. is known as Marpian Kurik, which is one of the spirits. And this particular spirit is important in knowing when a certain type of food is available. So Marpian Kurik, when it's high up in the northern sky, after the sun is set, the sun's called Nawi in their traditions, when it's in this position, that indicates that the bitter or the larvae of the wood ant or the pawpaw of the wood ant are available and in season. And it's a quite a sweet treat, apparently. Hmm. Mm. But then later in the year, when Marpian Kuruk is setting with Nawi, setting with the sun, then the bitter are out of season. Okay. Yeah. So we have collection of stars and individual stars can be whole constellations. And that is a very clever way of connecting seasonal changes, uh, what you can do with the sky. Exactly. And a way of saying, hey, if we see a star here, it is that that is going to happen. Mm. For example, Egyptians identified the very first time that Sirius was rising before the sun is rising in the morning twilight. Mm. And that is the heliacal rising of Sirius. Because that was a signal that the Nile was going to be flooded. Ah. So they, that, that was the way they were starting to count the year. Mm, at, the yes. end of, at the end of August, beginning of September, as it is now. It's very, very cool. They were very impressive, the Egyptians, with their astronomical knowledge as well. It's, mm-hmm. so this the, is what we're missing. Like We, we, the, need, we need more of this. The Incas also did mm. that with the Pleiades. They, yes. The Pleiades were used by the Incas just uh, to establish the calendar. Exactly in the same way. Um, I have a full presentation about Incas astronomy that perhaps one day we can talk about that. Excellent. And I can refresh my knowledge because that is something that I did 25 years ago. Oh, wow. (laughs) Before I was born. (laughs) So the third type of constellation we want to bring up here. So we have a collection of stars like Bayami. We have a singular star like Mapi and Kuruk. And now another one from my Wiradjuri heritage is the dark constellations. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about this before on our podcast. It is instead of using the bright stars in the night sky, we instead use the dark spaces of the Milky Way galaxy to manifest some sort of image or shape. Which is quite astonishing, I have to say. It's really cool, right? It's this completely different perspective that otherwise we would never really have thought about. Mm -hmm. It's really, really fantastic. So one of the most commonly known dark constellations is the Emu in the Sky. Many people would have heard about it before. Angel, you've taken magnificent photos of the emu in the sky, or the Milky Way in general. What's it like? What? what um, how do you feel seeing it? It is just astonishing. I think I have said in this podcast that the very first time that I saw the, all the Milky Way with the center of the Milky Way in the Senate here in Australia in 2003 when I came for a conference as a PhD student, I cried and I was crying for some few minutes because it was just so... It's just so beautiful. ...magnificent view and it is the best view that I have ever had in astronomy. Um, You see plenty... The the sky from the southern hemisphere, if you are observing, particularly now in this time of the year, uh, 10, 11 p.m., perhaps in July, August, it is a bit more at the beginning of the night, but when it is completely dark, the sky is not dark. Mm. It's grey. Yes. Because there is something that is the Milky Way crossing from right one part to the, the other. Sky. It's and it beautiful. is just 
and, and you see plenty of structure because it is not a continuous thing. It is broken because mm. of the different, now that we know, there are different dust clouds between us and the center of the galaxy and across the spiral arms in the galaxy. We are part of the Milky Way. We are seeing the projection of that uh, disk of gas and stars in the sky. And that is why we see the band, the main mm. band. And, and it is just, wow, well, you will find plenty of star clusters and nebula and these dark patches. And if you look into, if you look with a telescope or even you're using some binoculars, you will realize that there are plenty of stars there. Some of them are hidden because of these yes. dust clouds and we cannot see them, but with telescope we can start to see them. Exactly right. So the emu in the sky, it is beautiful. In Wiradjuri culture, we call it Gugamen. And Gorgomen's position in the night sky, much like Marpi and Kuduk, lets us know when is the right time of the year to go looking for emu eggs to forage. Mm, yeah. Which again, another very sophisticated use of the night sky as a seasonal menu of sorts. <laughs> and there are some even petroglyphs. Oh, rock carvings. Rock carvings. Yeah. I think that the fancy name it is petroglyph, showing the emu. Mm more or less in the same direction where you should expect and when you see the emu rising with yes. the Milky Way. So there's a different, so from the Eora Nation here in Sydney, there is a beautiful rock carving uh, in the national, in one of the national parks of the emu, which is the same orientation. When the emu on the ground matches the emu in the sky, that's when it indicates a certain time of mm -hmm. the emu cycle, which is Again, beautiful, seeing that, you know, from Sydney, from Eora, compared to Wiradjuri, that's quite a large distance. Yes, There's a few is. countries in between there, and mm -hmm. I'm sure that those countries in between would have similar views too, because there are emus around there as well. But it's, it's still different and unique mm -hmm. in its own way, which is really beautiful. It's a beautiful part about Aboriginal astronomy, that there are similarities, but they're still unique in their own way. Yeah. We, we didn't mention that... Uh, the structure of the emu, so the emu in the sky, the dark constellation. So it, it starts in the Southern Cross. Yes, just below to the left of the Southern Cross, you'll see this dark patch, which kind of looks like the head of mm -hmm. the emu, which is known as the Colsac Nebula, Nebula, which is yes. a dark nebula. Then there's this thin Cor band that mm. just goes towards the big bulge of the galaxy, and that's the neck, and then the bulge of the galaxy is the body. Mm -hmm. It's just... Oh, amazing. It is between what it is called the Great Rift and the Galactic Center. So all mm. that structure there, it is just beautiful and so easy to see the neck. Yes. Connected with the main body of the emu and sometimes even the legs of the emu behind it. Sometimes, yes. Those are a bit harder, to, they're a bit more subtle, those mm. ones. But once you see the emu, you can't no, but, it. No, definitely. Once you have seen it, you cannot unsee it. Exactly. It is, exactly. It is just that. Um, for me, every time that now I look at the sky and see the Milky Way that way, the first thing I see, it is not a Scorpio, it is not Sagittarius. It it's is the emu. It is the emu. Yes. Also because in a dark place, it is what you see. Exactly. You don't see the constellations. No, because there are just too many stars. Too many stars. <laughs> too many stars. The stars are completely lost in there. Sometimes I have said that if you want to know the constellations, it is better not doing it from a very dark place, but being in from a town or mm. even from your city that where, where you will only be able to see the brightest stars. Which are the ones from the constellations. Exactly, but, but not the rest of the stars. No. Some people that have learned to do astronomy in cities and in towns 
and identify are able to identify very well constellations when they go in the middle of the field in a dark place they're completely lost oh i struggle it's just i struggle diff- sometimes difficult to be, to find your way among the stars that's right but speaking of the milky way the milky way is actually quite prominent in Wiradjuri astronomy as well and indigenous australian astronomy too which makes sense because as you said the milky way is kind of the first thing you see it's the most salient object of the night sky maybe minus the moon but it's quite large it stretches across the entire night sky so it is quite prominent in astronomical traditions of aboriginal australians so i'm going to share with you multiple names that the milky way goes by my Wiradjuri culture so the general term for the milky way is called bilabang bulabang bilabang bilabang yes sounds like Billabong? Yes. That one. That's actually where the name Billabong originates from. But it's a pool, a little... It's it's a series of water holes. A water hole. That's what it That's what it represents. So the word Billabong, if you ever use that word, remember, it's actually originated from Wiradjuri traditional language. Is that also some kind of a mark of... Yes, it is, close, a, it is a... Uh, close mark? A, a billabong? A billabong. It's like surf clothes and surf streetwear and swimwear so yes they they are using that is a tradition not related to Wiradjuri culture at all <laughs> but they are using the traditional Wiradjuri word or at least the uh the westernized version of the word so yes the general term of the Milky Way is called Billabang but as I mentioned a little while ago about the emu the rock carving on the ground matching mm-hmm. the emu in the sky mm-hmm. That's a very important concept in Aboriginal culture. What is on the ground is matched and mirrored in the sky, or vice versa. So, depending on where you are on Wiradjuri country, the Milky Way changes names based on the nearest river Mm. you are near. So, to the north of Wiradjuri country, near Gamilaro country, which is where the AAT is situated, Mm -hmm. we call them the Milky Way Womble, which represents the Macquarie River, which runs through the northern part of Wiradjuri country and through Gamilaroi country too. Where Gamilaroi call it Warumbul, which is very similar. Mm. Still unique, but very similar. Uh, yeah, I don't Can you say the two names again? Wumbul. Wumbul and? And Warumbul. Warumbul, okay. Yes. Yeah. So very, very similar. But if you're in central Wiradjuri country, we call the Milky Way Galari, which represents the Lachlan River mm. running through central Central New South Wales and Central Wiradjuri country. If you're south, it is then called the Marambidiri, which sounds like the Marambidji River. Ah. Which is exactly it. So mm. again, it westernized a little bit, but Marambidiri is the traditional name of the Milky Way galaxy from the southern part of Wiradjuri country. Oh, okay. Yes. Hmm. It's nice Good. to see those parallels between the sky and the land, isn't it? It's, yes, it, yes. Because again, that's an important part that we are connected. And we work together mm-hmm. as part of the sky, the land, and the people. But uh, that's that's a little bit of an introduction to what Aboriginal astronomy is all about. And I feel very happy to have you here listening to my culture and listening and learning about my culture, which is beautiful. So Thank I would like to say mandangu, which is thank you in Wiradjuri traditional language. Oh, thank you. And we will continue talking about Aboriginal astronomy for sure in many other episodes we have been mentioning here and there some little things exactly but at least we are starting to to have a better broad overview of what important was for aboriginal australians and how we have to keep that knowledge safe for future generations yes and recover 
the knowledge and recover yes that is also very important to recover the knowledge that have been lost or stolen yes during the last uh, few centuries good so to finish off yes classic what's up what's up well what's up it's going to be very easy for us today because we have already talking about it that's right we are going to recommend all of you who are lucky enough to live in the southern hemisphere to have a look to the dark emu the emu in the sky Look out for Gugurman. So you'll need to find a place where there's a little to no light pollution. So for those living near a bright city, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> or check out the gorgeous images that Unhel has gotten of the emu. But there are many very beautiful images out there. But definitely just go and try to identify the dark emu in mm. the sky. And also inviting you to participate in this citizen science project of measuring the light pollution. Yes, go count some stars. Yes, (laughs) so from our friend in the Northern Hemisphere, at least they will be able to see the main body of the Hemu, that is the constellation of Sagittarius and a bit of Scorpius, Guton and so Mm. on. You will not be able to identify the Hemu there, that's for sure. You can only see it from the Southern Hemisphere with this, the neck, finishing in the, With the head. In, in the head, in the Corsac Dark Nebula, in the Southern Cross. But anyway, it's just a nice excuse for you to try to look at the sky from a very dark place and to wonder about beautiful Milky Way and to protect the sky, not only for future generations, but also for our planet and for our environment. That's right. Thank you for, as always, send us your questions uh, on Twitter at The Scientists, on Facebook at The Scientists, via email, thescientist at gmail.com. Send us questions, send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear from you. We are easy to find. But thank you very much for being there, listening to us, and particularly thank you, Kerstin, for all of this information about Aboriginal astronomy today. My pleasure. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.